Um, it's time for us to work through more of 1 Timothy. And I just want to acknowledge, you know, if any of you have looked at the passage this week, I just want to acknowledge that, that I realize that some of you may have come, and this might have been a very hard passage for you, um, or for those who are watching, or the people on Tuesday, ladies on Tuesday night. Um, but I'm glad that you still came if it was hard. <laughs> I'm glad that you're tuning in if it was hard. <laughs> because um, I just think it's important for us to wrestle through what God says about these things. And I love that we get to do it in the context of First Timothy with the rest of what he is saying and was saying. And we get to just approach it. And it's not just this standalone passage that we have to figure out without the rest of the word. And so anyway, I just wanted to real, just acknowledge, I know that this wasn't an easy passage, but I'm just glad that if it was a hard one for you, that you came <laughs> and that you stuck through it. So anyway, up to this week, we've covered chapter one. And um, in chapter one, we saw Paul's heart towards Timothy, um, his heart like a father with his son. He viewed him as a son in the faith, which was just very precious, and the way that Janet explained it was sweet. Um, Paul has discipled him, and we, we've gotten a snapshot of that relationship and, ha and what that kind of relationship looks like in this book, which is very, very cool. Timothy had challenges with the church that he was in, in Ephesus. Um, the few that were mentioned were false doctrine, fruitless discussions about the law. Timothy was encouraged by Paul to stay the course. Um, or as Janet put it, like staying on the hiking trail <laughs> so that he wouldn't get off, you know, lost or, or in danger. Uh, last week we studied the second half of chapter one and we saw Paul giving his testimony of God's mercy and grace. And Paul encouraged Timothy to fight the good fight um, and to remember what God had revealed to him already. Last week we were encouraged to keep the faith and live it with a good conscience so that we wouldn't become like shipwrecked. Um, Jackie encouraged us with Paul to hold fast to Jesus and that by his grace, we need to cling to him in our relationship with him. And uh, so now Paul has talked to Timothy about the church and its message, and now he's going to switch gears and talk about the church and its members, right, the people that make up the church. And here we begin to see Paul laying out some order for Timothy. Um, let's read 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. It says, First of all, then, I urge that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made in behalf of all people, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth, of the truth. So the first order of business is prayer. Paul tells Timothy to pray first. He doesn't just um, tell him, you know, he urges him to do it. He didn't say pray when you feel like it or if you remember it, but he urged him to do it first. I would take it a step further and say in the context of Paul getting ready to lay out how the church should operate, he's stating that prayer needs to be the most important starting place, that this is the most important starting place. And I would say this is um, the same for us also. God wants us to do this first. Whether it's praying for people God has, um, has us ministering to, like Timothy, or praying for our families, or the people we work with, or whatever. I love how he explains um, what that would entail. And he gave us an example. What he's, 
What he is doing here is he's spending time teaching Timothy how to pray. Paul says to pray for requests, prayer, um, requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving to be made on behalf of all people. I think it's interesting that Paul doesn't urge him to pray for himself necessarily. I think he assumes <laughs> that he's going to pray for himself. Like, it's safe to assume that we, you know, when we pray, we're going to pray for ourselves. That's kind of the first thing we, we go to. If I'm, I'm speaking generally, but I would say for the most part. <laughs> but Paul encourages us to intercede for others. This word intercession means having a meeting or a conversation. It's simply talking to God about other people. Um, sometimes it's talking to God for other people. Sometimes I will talk to a friend that's struggling and they don't have the strength to pray for their own prayer, you know? I know I've been there. Um, I can be so overwhelmed, I don't even know where to start with, with praying. And that's when it's good to reach out and ask for prayer. We fill in the gaps with each other. Um, and the last part of the different parts of prayer mentioned is thanksgiving. When I was thinking of prayer and thanksgiving, I was thinking about people around me that I admire. Um, particularly when it comes to like prayer life, you know? Their prayers make me think. You have around people where you're like, I wanna learn how to pray like that. <laughs> um, uh, I feel like when I'm around some people, I just, I'm just scraping the surface when it comes to prayer. <laughs> you know, um, There's one lady um, here at Bible study, and I won't mention her name because she would, wouldn't like that. <laughs> but she oftentimes thanks God for what she knows he's going to do before he does it. And it makes me think of when Paul listed it last year. You know, that's like what he's saying. <laughs> Go ahead and thank God for how he's, already, how he's going to answer this prayer that you just prayed for. I just think it's, it kind of blows my mind. <laughs> it takes faith to pray like that, in that way, trusting that somehow in his way, he will answer these prayers. Paul says to pray for all people, and then he hones it down. Let's take a look at the example Paul uses for us to pray for. He says, for kings and all who are in authority. The word authority here is the same word used in Romans 13 when Paul says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Two times, Paul will use this, this term in chapter two. As I looked into it, and this is also pointed out in the packet, that these two words have two different meanings, that they're actually, um, I think they're actually two different words when I looked it up. The word authority here in this verse is referring to a magistrate, someone in high places, an official exercising governmental power. Um, that would be like praying for the president or our governor. <laughs> and does, I don't know, does anyone else struggle with that? Like, <laughs> I'm just really honest. I think I've shared it with you. I have a hard time praying. <laughs> for these people. I, I pray every week with my, my good friend, that was, she's my old college roommate. She lives in Washington, and every time we pray, <laughs> she always starts praying for her governor, and she's in Washington. <laughs> and, then I, and then I'm like, I should follow suit. I should pray too, and then I'm like, <laughs> I can't think. I can't think of a single thing. <laughs> 
I do, but it's harder. It's hard because, and I'm not trying to be political here, really. I mean, I don't really care, you know. But I, <laughs> but honestly, it's just harder to pray for someone you know you don't agree with. You know, it is. I'm guessing that Timothy may have had the same struggles at his, in his time with the authorities at that time. But we see how important it is to do, you know, to pray here, that Paul is urging him as a leader in the church to, like, set this example. And one of the best parts of this passage is that, so that, in verse two, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. When we pray for others, including the governing authorities, it helps us surrender to God the things and people out of our control, right? When we do this, we can lead a tranquil and quiet life. Tranquil means like free from agitation of mind or spirit. We pray so that we can live free of being worried or agitated, but can live a life of peacefulness and calmness, which are synonyms for tranquil, you know? We don't pray for the governing authorities. If we don't pray for the governing authorities, what else do we do with our worries and frustrations? Like, what else can we do with them but pray? It definitely doesn't bring tranquility or peace if we're doing other stuff, you know, like worrying <laughs> or being mad or angry. When we lead, lead this tranquil and quiet life because of prayer, we can do it with godliness and dignity. The term godliness is referring to having like a reverence or a respect for God. And I think we can revere God and walk in his peace because he has control, even when it feels like the world is out of control. Verses three, three and four say, this is good and acceptable in the sight of our God, God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. I see a progression here. We pray for all people, including the authorities in our life. We pray thanking God in faith that he's at work and, and will answer in his way. And when we let go of our worries that are involved with all we pray for and give them to Jesus, we have the ability to live in peace and calmness. And then he produces the godliness that we need. We start looking more like Jesus through it as we're trusting him. And in the end, we can point to Jesus and his gospel. God uses us to bring about change. People will see the fruit of our prayers, you know, our peace, and it can be an opportunity to share the gospel. Then, at this point in the passage, Paul goes into explaining the truth mentioned in verse 4. Let's read it in verses 5 through 7. It says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed as a preacher and as an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as, I, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Um, the things said about Jesus in this passage are building blocks in many ways to our Christian faith. We see that there is one God and one mediator, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that goes between us and God, and he's the one that can restore our peace and friendship with him. Mary can't do it, you know, in the Catholic Church, Mary, you know, in the Bible. The saints can't do it. You and I could never do it. Only Jesus could be a mediator between us and God. Jesus took our place. He paid the ransom, the price for our salvation. And in doing it, he freed us from sin. Jesus is our evidence and proof of our salvation. These truths about Jesus are what Paul came to teach and preach. In essence, it's the gospel. This is the truth that Paul wants Timothy to go back to and stay centered on. 
And this is what we can stay centered on in our prayers, our imperfect, sometimes messy prayers for everyone. Jesus bridges the gap and is our mediator. And I wanted to point out before we move on, Paul is referring to himself as a preacher and an apostle. He points out that he's appointed to be these things for the gospel, for truth. Now in verse eight, Paul says, therefore, which literally means because of that, <laughs> what I just said, because of all Paul said regarding the prayer, the gospel, and mentioning even his authority that God has given him to preach the truth, because of all of that, now he's going to take the next step after prayer for everyone. Now he's going to get specific about order in the church. Let's read verses 8 through 15. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger and dispute. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive apparel, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women taking a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, who the woman was deceived and became a wrongdoer. But women will be preserved through childbirth if they continue in faith, love, sanctity, and sanctity with moderation. So... I don't need to say anything more. Yes. <laughs> we can just pray and move on. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I mean, before I even go any further, I'm just going to say that we're all, it's very likely we might all land in different places and spaces. Some things in this passage might stick out more to you than it does to the person sitting next to you for lots of different reasons your history just your own context, right? <laughs> and that's okay. And this is not a gospel issue, right? This is not a salvation <laughs> main thing, thing, you know? And so it is, it's, it can be debatable, and that's okay if we land in different places. I'm gonna share what I got out of it, you know, and I trust that the Lord will, sh you know, he'll reveal to you what, what he wants you to know and hear from it, so. With all that saying, we're not done yet, don't worry. <laughs> um, so, 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 so many questions came to my mind when I read this. <laughs> um, then so many questions came to my mind that maybe some of you might have. <laughs> and without a doubt, without a doubt, this flies in the face of our culture, like straight up. I'm guessing that it did for Timothy's culture too. Like, um, so some of those questions might be, um, is this just Paul's opinion here? Is the stuff he's talking about all cultural and just can be ignored? <laughs> if not, what is spiritual and what is cultural? And how do we determine that, right? Is Paul just a chauvinistic guy? <laughs> Should women never braid their hair or ever wear jewelry? And what is considered proper clothing, right? And modesty, we're living in a day where like, Purity culture is currently being canceled. Right? Paul didn't get the memo. <laughs> so, you know. Also, should I even be up here teaching? Like, I'm a woman. <laughs> teaching up here. Like, I don't know. You know, I'm a, I'm a woman in the church. And what does that mean for ladies to remain quiet in the church? How does that look? 
And then we come to the example that Paul gives about Adam and Eve. And I was like, oh good, it's an example. <laughs> and my thought was honestly that that example brought more questions to me. <laughs> and I was trying honestly not to be offended the first time I read it. And I was like, what? Oh, that doesn't make any, that does not help. <laughs> like examples are supposed to help. <laughs> anyway, that's just me. <laughs> But I'm not there anymore. God has slowly helped me. <laughs> um, did anyone else feel uncomfortable after reading this passage for the first time? I mean, it may not have been your first time, right? I mean, the first time probably is uncomfortable for any woman. Um, so many of these questions, you know, honestly, a lot of them could come from our flesh, you know, our desire to try and interpret the Bible based on our own understanding sometimes rooted based on what the culture has taught us as women, you know? Somehow, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we have to weed out the culture from our thinking and get a better picture of what is really being said here, because that goes beyond the culture. It's way more important than what the culture says. What is God's heart here? How does God feel about women? Praise God that he never intended this passage, like I said, to be the standalone in all of scripture. <laughs> no, the, the best commentator on the Bible is the Bible. And so I'm going to do my best to address some of these questions as we read through the verses. Um, let's start in verses 8 through 10. I'm not going to reread it because I just did, but you guys can look at it if you want. Paul begins to lay out different instructions for men and women in this passage. Does he make a distinction with men, women, women, men and women because women are inferior to men in God's eyes or Paul's eyes? I think this is a good place to start before we try and understand the rest of what Paul is saying, right? In Genesis 1:27, it says, we see God created men and women in his image. I'm sorry, in that passage in Genesis 1:27, we see that God created men and women in his own image. And it, it wasn't just one or both in his image. It, it wasn't just one, it was both that were made in his image. In 1 Peter 3, 7, Peter refers to men and women as fellow heirs in the grace of life. And in Galatians 3, 28, there, it says, um, there is neither Jew or Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. So men and women are equally important and have value in God's kingdom. We are fellow heirs, we both bear God's image, and we are one in the church through Jesus Christ. In that passage in Galatians that I just read, Paul is the one saying that there is neither male nor female, okay? <laughs> so this is his idea, like this is how he's thinking in this context. There's no seniority or inferiority, but we are one in importance in God's family. The context would be good to have in mind when we move that context, you know, that I just explained. It's good to have in mind when we move into this passage. What Paul is doing in this passage is giving instructions, not based, like I said, on superiority, but on how we ought to be within the order of the church. Seeing that he has separated the men and the women shows that, there's a diff that there are different roles that are being played out within the context of the church. That there are differences. Um, he does not say that women are less important or useful in God's church, but that they have a different role for a reason. This isn't Paul's idea. This isn't the first time Paul has laid out men and women's roles within the church. Um, because of time, I'm not going to read all these other passages that I have this explanation of these roles more. But for the most part, these are passages that are addressing roles within marriage, within wives and husbands. So, um, so if you want more on like roles for women and men, 
within the context of marriage. You could look at Colossians 3, Ephesians 5, and 1 Peter 3. But because of, for the sake of time, I'm like skimming the surface, ladies. Like, I don't want to be here all day with you. I know you guys wouldn't want that. So I feel like it's good to note that the roles we're, off, we're addressing today in 1 Timothy are about roles of women and, men, women, women and men in the church, not necessarily in marriage, although you see overlap in the passages I just mentioned. Also, Paul's not saying we have these roles outside of the church, like in a business setting or other areas of our life. You know, he's talking about the context of church, right? Um, in these two verses, he gives physical instructions, you know, what they ought to do with their body, and then addresses the attitude of the heart. I feel this is key because I think we can get caught up in the do this and don't do that, that we may be losing the heart behind all of it, right? Um, for the men, he says they ought to, in every place, pray lifting up holy hands. This idea of lifting up holy hands while prayer is in several places in the Bible. In Exodus 9.29, we see Moses lifting up his hands in prayer. Leviticus 9.22, we see Aaron lifting up his hands in prayer. 1 Kings 8.22, there's Solomon doing the same thing. Psalm 28.2, David's doing the same thing. Nehemiah 8.6, Ezra is doing the same thing. He's praying with lifted hands. And we see these men, all of which are leaders. They all had this in common, being leaders, praying while lifting their hands. In Luke 24, 50, Jesus, before his ascension into heaven, he lifted up his hands and prayed for the followers, you know, that he was leaving. This same Greek term is also used all over the Gospels when it's referring to Jesus looking up. It is the idea of focusing the posture of a person to focus on where our help comes from, which is from God. Just because it's mentioned for men to do here does not mean that women cannot pray in this way either. It's not this like legalistic, this is <laughs> exactly just so. I think if this was the case, Paul would make it clear. You know, men lift your hands, women don't do that, you know, but he doesn't. So why instruct men to do this? I think we see it in some of the passages I just mentioned. The other places in the word where we see men taking this posture of lifting hands when praying these are leaders, you know, of Israel or the church. Paul's encouraging them to lead the church by their example of prayer. We see this consistent with how men are to lead in their home. Does the lifting of the holy hands have to happen, you know, for them to be a leader? <laughs> I think we can see the point in um, that we can see the point in the heart issues that are mentioned here. The men are to lift up holy hands without anger and dispute. Dispute here means questioning what is true when in, re in reference to what ought be done. God wants unity among the men so that peace will reign, not arguing and debating about how things ought to be done. All of it falls back on the posture of the heart. Now let's take a look at what the physical instructions are for the women. Verse 9 says, women are to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive apparel. So I just want to work this out a little bit. There's just a lot just right there. <laughs> when looking up the Greek for the word modestly, it gave more depth than the word itself may imply. Um, instead of it just being the way women dress you know, that's conservative. It gave this idea of being instead, like, not just instead, but with also well-ordered, moderate, taking some thought in how she appears. 
More than that, the word also meant dressing for what is proper in any given, se- in any given setting. Um, the word discreetly means here in moderation. It can also mean behaving in a sensible manner with the implication of thoughtful awareness as to what is best. Uh, One pastor I listened to explained it in regards to our culture. You know, we live in a culture that is all about me, you know? It's about me. (laughs) It is an attitude with the goal of drawing attention to ourself, right? I believe this is what Paul is addressing here. He's instructing that Timothy encourage the woman to do something physically in regards to their appearance that doesn't draw unnecessary attention to themselves. But instead, if they are drawing any attention to themselves, it would be because of their good works, especially if they claim to worship God. They will look different, in the, um, different to the world primarily with their attitude and their reverence to God. When I looked into like braided hair, gold, pearls, fancy clothing, (laughs) it gives this idea of drawing attention to themselves to maybe show off wealth. It's a possibility. There's a lot of ways it could have gone. I read lots of stuff. I mean, during the day, um, Timothy's day, they had the temple for Diana, and that had lots of prostitution, and there were like niches outside the temple with women that were dancing and luring men in, you know, naked women, you know. And so, and they had even a bank that paid for the money that they gained from that temple. Like they had to, they had to make a bank just for the money, you know. And so, who knows, maybe those women had gold or braided hair. I don't know. It could have been just that they were wealthy and they wanted everyone to know it, that they had a servant that could braid their hair or... Gold, a lot of times in the Bible I saw, um, you know, uh, was often a sign of being rich, you know. So it could have been a lot of different things. But in the end, it was this idea of drawing attention to themselves um, unnecessarily. Here's a part of the passage that could be very cultural. It could. I think with the outward physical things Paul is addressing here, especially specifically, if we get stuck there, we miss the heart behind it right? Which I believe is the main point, is the heart. What I want to point out here that Paul didn't say is that he didn't say it's bad for women to want to look nice. (laughs) Or he didn't say that that they were not to enhance their appearance. He didn't say that. Those things are okay. But the point is to encourage women not to be distracting, looking no different than the world. The braided hair and jewelry, maybe in Timothy's time, was a sign of wealth, like I had mentioned. And I, I think, you know, it's, it's not even bad to want to follow trends, you know? I don't even think that's wrong. I think it's just when it's so exuberant that you're just, look at me. <laughs> I think that's the idea, and the heart is wrong, you know? Um, if, if the heart is wrong in it, that's the bigger issue. The point is the distraction that it could bring if women were not being, not being thoughtful about it. Thinking about the why when we're wearing whatever we're wearing, you know? Instead, we're encouraged to stand out because of our heart. Do we worship, revere, and follow God? Do we look like Jesus? I know that there's a push today to get rid of um, this idea of women needing to be modest. It's totally a thing right now. Even within this last year, there's been a pushback within the church against what's called, you know, purity culture. It's like what I mentioned before. For those who aren't really familiar with that term, purity culture, um, it was a term often used for the evangelical, sorry, my mouth, (laughs) too many words, (laughs) evangelical movement in the 90s. It's something that, um, it was an attempt to promote biblical views of purity. Things like true love weights, 
pledges, purity rings, books like I Kiss Dating Goodbye, and modesty fashion shows are some of the things that people think of when they think of this idea of purity culture, right? Within the, within the church. And I, I definitely, you know, being a teenager that came out of the 90s, <laughs> that was like my world when I was a teenager. <laughs> I definitely had experiences in the church when I went to modesty fashion shows with my youth group, you know, where there were girls walking down the runway showing off their modest apparel, like, this is how you do it, women. <laughs> I look back and I'm like, wow. <laughs> the pressure and the emphasis was intense on the girls. Like, this is just my perception of going through it at that age. It was intense um, on the girls' side, much more than the guys' side. I remember my senior year not, you know, only wearing Christian t-shirts in fear that I wore some, if I wore something else, I might make a guy stumble. Like, it, just a very legalistic fear that was created, you know, not just because of this, but the way that I took it, the way that my church pushed it, you know. I look back and see a lot of that legalism, um, you know, you know, all around me, I remember. And a lot more discussion on, those, on these subjects about modesty and sex would have helped me a lot more. <laughs> and a lot of my peers at the time, like, it could have been talked more about. I think that's what should have happened. <laughs> I remember having friends getting married. We were all getting married around the same time, carrying the idea that sex was a sin in their marriage, into their marriage, not because anyone said it was a sin, but because we were, it was so emphasized that sex outside of marriage is sin, 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 you know, <laughs> that it was never explained. There was no balance, you know, on how sex is beautiful in the bounds of marriage. And so they struggled as a married woman with sex. I look back and I think more, more grace for girls that had made mistakes sexually could have gone a long way. <laughs> instead of lots of girls and guys just walking away from the church if they had messed up because there was no place for them there. You know what I mean? That's what I remember when I was, you know, and that's just my own perception. The heart behind the message, though, was biblical. You know, it was good, but the way it all played out practically wasn't perfect. I think it could have been a lot different. I think legalism messes up so much stuff. <laughs> so many good things, right, ladies? These things now have been heavily criticized by our culture, even by many in the church. And our culture doesn't, you know, our, our, it's criticized by our culture because they don't like gender roles um, or encouragement to wait to have sex until marriage. You know, the, the culture hates that. Or any responsibility being put on women to think about being modest for the sake of men. I do think it's important for women to care about modesty but the responsibility can only be placed on the woman when it comes to modesty, and um, the, the responsibility can't only be placed on the women <laughs> when it comes to modesty and trying to help men not stumble in their minds in the, way that they, in the way we dress. Men have just as much responsibility, you know, to be careful and accountable in their minds when they look at women. But we as women do not live in a vacuum. <laughs> what we do and how we dress can affect the people around us, and I think that's the point. Our call is to love God and love our neighbor, and so that does affect our lives. If we're being thoughtful, aware, taking time to think about our apparel, kind of like this idea of modesty, thinking to ourselves when we get ready for church, you know, because this is within the context of being at church, and asking ourselves, what is my heart behind what I'm wearing today? Am I drawing attention to myself in a sexual way with this outfit? It's not bad to think through this thing. I think it's good. That's the whole point, is to be thoughtful, 
but let's not be legalistic about it. <laughs> but focus on the heart in it, just like Paul is. Um, that was Paul's point. Let's move on to verses 11 and 12. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Twice we're instructed here to remain quiet in these verses. At first glance, it seemed like insensitive and kind of harsh, you know. When I looked up the word quiet, the meaning gave this idea of not total silence, but peaceable, just being peaceable, being without contention. Here we can see it doesn't mean that we must never talk, that's not what he's saying, but how we talk and when we do it matters. In 1 Corinthians 11.5, it refers to women praying and prophesying within the church setting. Also in Titus 2, older women are encouraged to teach younger women. Clearly, we're allowed to speak in church, you know. The main thought here is silence so as to listen. It's in the context of receiving instruction. The word submissiveness in the packet was defined aligning our will with someone else's will surrendering our own control over a person or circumstance. When we quiet ourselves and have an attitude of listening, being willing to submit, we yield ourselves and become a part of the order of things, you know? There are times to talk in church, and then there are times when we ought to listen and receive without being a distraction or disruptive. To me, verse 12 felt like an example by Paul for what he just said in verse 11. He said that he doesn't allow women to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. I think it's good for us to recognize that he's talking about women teaching men. Um, The word teaching in the Greek is referring to teaching doctrine or theology, and coupled with this, this term exercising authority, which means someone appointed by God to, this is this, this definition for exercising authority, someone appointed by God to advise, speak truth, and oversee another. In essence, it's the same idea as an elder or a pastor, okay? Because Paul said teaching or to exercise authority, I think that the or makes it not just teaching, but it's the whole enchilada, right? (laughs) Teaching doctrine as an elder or a pastor is the way that I understand this. My understanding, which I know is debatable, (laughs) is that this is Paul's saying women should not be in a position of elders or pastors, that these roles and this order should have men leading in this way. Again, it's not necessarily because women cannot teach, obviously, <laughs> for teaching, but that in or- it's in the order of the church. God desires men to be leading in the roles of pastors and elders. And I think as, as women, we can be supportive in that and not resistant against it, you know? It's that heart of submissiveness. So now let's look, let's get into the example Paul uses in verses 13 through 15 to really explain his reasoning for this order. It's in, let's read 13, it says, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a wrongdoer. But women will be preserved through childbirth if they continue in faith, love and sanctity with moderation. So, you know. That just clears it all up. No. <laughs> I struggled with this, definitely initially, this, this explanation. <laughs> but as I studied it, I saw his point was to show us that this part of what he is saying is not cultural. I think the point of this example was to show us that this is not cultural, you know? 
Um, but in fact, he brings us to the beginning. He goes way back to the beginning of time. <laughs> when God was laying out the order of things and deciding roles for men and women. If anyone tells you this passage is just cultural, point them to Paul's example here. If it was cultural, he would have used a culture, an example from their culture, but instead he goes back to creation. Paul reminds us that Adam was made first and then Eve. This is important that when we take a look back in Genesis 2, 15 through 17, we see God giving Adam instructions about the garden before Eve was even created. It says, when the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and tend it, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for on that day, the day that you eat from it, it you will certainly die. And then in the very next verse is when Eve is created. <laughs> so I want to point out here that the command given about the tree was given to Adam, right? Eve wasn't even there yet. This was because God created Adam to be the leader. He gave him certain responsibilities. God had man be the leader. It was his original order. When Eve was deceived in chapter 3, Adam was there. He was standing there. I think for a long time when I read that story, I'm like, oh, Adam was off doing something. I don't know what he was doing, but he wasn't there. He was like, oh, whoops, I wasn't there. No, he was totally there. Um, he, he, um, Adam, was not, Adam was there not leading her in what was commanded of God to him. Instead, he took the fruit from Eve. The way David Guzid explained it was, Eve was deceived and Adam was not deceived. Eve was tricked, but Adam sinned and knew exactly what he was doing when he rebelled. Satan went after Eve. I believe, not because of her being weaker, but he went after the order God laid out. He tripped them up by, re by reversing the roles, <laughs> trying to. Although Eve sinned first, the Bible lays the respons responsibility of the fall of humankind at Adam's feet in Romans 5:12. It says, therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all mankind because all sin. Adam was responsible because he was not deceived, and his role in that situation was one of leading. Eve's role was to follow his lead, not lead the way. <laughs> so she was responsible also, as we see in our passage. As um, God lays out for us in a functional order to the church, men are to lead in marriage also. Um, so let's tackle this, this last verse, verse 15. But women will be preserved through childbirth if they continue in faith, love, and sanctity with moderation. Other versions say she will be saved through childbearing. Does this mean that we give, that if we give birth to children, we'll be saved, right? I mean, it's like obvious, like, meh. <laughs> if so, what if, what if a woman can't get pregnant? What does that mean? Is she excluded from salvation, <laughs> you know? So whenever you come across a passage like this that seems to, like, blow your basic understanding of the gospel out of the water, and there's no other passages quite like it, <laughs> That's your sign that you just need to dig a little deeper and not necessarily take it at face value, what you think it says it means right off, you know? This is the case here. When I looked up the word in Greek used here for preserved or saved, the word was not used to mean eternal salvation. It meant saved from something. 
David Guzid explained the meaning of this verse well. He said, probably the idea here is that even though the woman race did something bad in the garden by being deceived and falling into transgression, the woman race also did something far greater in being used by God to bring the saving Messiah into the world. After the sin of Adam and Eve, God promised that one day Eve's offspring would strike the serpent's head in Genesis 3.15. A woman did sin and help bring about the fall. But the hope I see here in, in our verse today is that God promised in Genesis that woman would play a part in bringing into the world through childbirth the salvation needed because of the fall. God's so gracious like that, you know? He could work out good even despite the greatest mess-ups, right? <laughs> and he would be willing to use women to bring it about, Mary. Um, Jesus ultimately defeated the devil on the cross, but we as his body are told that the devil will also be crushed under our feet. Romans 16, 20. At the end of verse 15, God calls us ladies to continue in faith, love, and sanctity with moderation. Sanctity here means to live set apart for a purpose. Our hearts are what are important in God's eyes, our trust in him, our love for others, and living in a way that's self-controlled and has a purpose. This is what God brings, this is what brings God glory, you know, and, and gives him the attention he deserves in our life. So let's be women who pray with thankfulness. You know, let's let God fill us with peace so the world can see that we're different. Let's take our place and fill our role in the church being peaceable, loving, and self-controlled. You know, this is Paul's whole point, that this is good for us. So that's all I have. We can pray. <laughs> thank you, Lord, for this. God, I just thank you um, that when we pray and ask you, to help us understand that you do. I know you've done that with me. I just pray, God, that if there are any women that are still struggling through this, that you would just help work it out for them in their small groups, God, and that they wouldn't leave having more questions than they came with, Lord, but that instead you would just meet each one of us and, and speak to us, God. I know we're always in process, Lord, with you, and I just pray you do a good work this um, during our small groups, Lord. And as we process through these ideas, uh, I just thank you for your word, Lord. And um, I just pray you would bless the rest of our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.